think one of them left a little tic-tac on the floor. Or maybe it was like one of those ninja bombs where they're supposed to throw it down and the smoke comes up. And that's how they exit. You never know what you're going to hear at incarnation time. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, these are, these are challenging words that Jesus brings us today, but they're also words of liberation. We pray that we would trust you enough to hear the second that we might live into the challenge. Amen. 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 I want to begin today by describing a situation that I think most of, most of us have experienced. So you're, uh, you're standing on the corner of a road, and you're, you're about to go across, but everybody's waiting at the crosswalk, and there's still the red hand. And, um, you know, everybody's just kind of chilling there, waiting, and then someone in the group um, just kind of looks and is like, there ain't no cars coming. And they just go, right? They just go. Now, now when they go, when they start to kind of dart across the street, everyone else that's sitting there is like, am I stupid for just standing here? Like, what am I doing, right? So what, what happens... Uh, you, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Some of you guys are like, yeah, I'm that guy. <laughs> that guy who goes across the street. Well, what happens in that moment? Well, the group that has been content to wait until the light turned is now confronted with a new decision. Perhaps some of them also began crossing the road, right? Disregarding the previous rules that kept them in place. So this single act of nonconformity begins to give a new sense of permission to the whole group, right? Now this type of sociological phenomena isn't just restricted to jaywalking, right? In fact, I I probably should have come up with an example that wasn't illegal. (laughs) But my point is that to follow Jesus' teaching on simplicity when it comes to our finances, especially in such an affluent and money-driven culture, is going to take a serious commitment to nonconformity, to living lives of creative nonconformity. People will think that you're crazy. They'll tell you so. But it's okay. We don't want to get too cozy in this life. The Apostle James writes, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity toward God? Friendship with the world, conformity to the world. Paul says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I want to quote at length to you from a book called Celebration of Discipline. And uh, I'm going I'm to quote from this a lot today, just because uh, his chapter on simplicity in here, which is just worth the cost of the whole book, is perhaps the most clear-headed and thoroughly biblical teaching I've ever encountered on the topic of money. You can see I've worn out my copy here. Um, And although this book was written in 1978, it's as prophetic now as it was back then. And so speaking about our money-driven culture, Richard Foster writes, Because we lack a divine center, our need for security has led us into an insane attachment for things. He says, We really must understand that the lust for affluence in contemporary society is psychotic. It's psychotic because it has completely lost touch with reality. We crave things we neither need nor enjoy. We buy things we do not want to impress people we do not like. (laughs) He continues, We're made to feel ashamed to wear clothes or drive cars until they're worn out. The mass media has convinced us that to be out of step with fashion is to be out of step with reality. Covetousness we call ambition. 
Hoarding we call prudence. Greed we call industry. It's time that we awaken to the fact that conformity to a sick society is to be sick. But listen, Incarnation. Perhaps if we're the first ones to step out and to cross the road, it might liberate others to live out the teachings of Jesus as well. If we can demonstrate a different ethic, a kingdom ethic, perhaps some might come into this joyful unconcern for possessions. And as we do so, our main objective is actually not nonconformity to the world. It's to seek first the kingdom of God. Luke 12, 31 says, seek his kingdom. The NRSV translates it, strive for his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. The kingdom of God gives us a whole different basis of operation, to live with this joyful unconcern as to whether we have much or whether we have little, to be sacrificially generous to the poor and to the mission of God, to trust the Father to provide for us, rather than trusting our own anxiety to be our shepherd. Have you ever heard anybody say, of course I worry. If I worry, no one else will. Right? That's another way of saying the way that, the way that we get taken care of, the way that we get on in this life is that somebody has to worry. Worry is our shepherd. God isn't our shepherd. False. <laughs> Jesus has much to teach us in Luke 12 about living this kind of life, about what Richard Foster calls the freedom of simplicity. Last week we looked at the parable of the rich fool in verses 13 through 21, and this week we'll look at verses 22 through 34. But before we dive into the passage, I want to mention two pitfalls that we need to avoid when it comes to the topic of money. And the first is to privatize, and the second is to standardize. By the temptation to privatize, I mean that we're tempted to think that the way we use money is between us and us. In this way, we're like the rich fool in the parable. When his land produced an unexpectedly huge profit, he not only decides to spend it all on himself, he doesn't even want to consult anyone but himself. So he thinks to himself, and he talks to himself, and he says to his own soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. It's a portrait of utter self-centeredness and privatization. Now, I will say that a certain amount of discretion with your finances is just a matter of basic tact, right? We don't want to be boasting about how much we have or even how little we have. But that being said, when it comes to the topic of money, we're often tempted to act exactly like the rich fool here. We don't want the church to say anything about the topic. We make major financial decisions without con con uh, consulting any of our mature brothers and sisters in Christ. Some people privatize so much that they don't even want their own spouses looking at how they spend money. Brothers and sisters, that's just unacceptable for a disciple that's called to live in the light. And it's not only that privatization is unacceptable, we see in our parable that it's also an illusion because someone always sees. God always sees. And he will call us to account. The rich man in the parable faces judgment, and God says to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. So at judgment, everything is laid bare. There's no more privacy to hide behind. Second, we face the temptation to standardize. That is to say that we often look at our own lifestyle or convictions about money, and then we try to make that 
the standard by which we judge all other people. Right? So if someone has more, we think they're greedy. And if someone intentionally lives on less, we think that they're being too radical or impractical. The temptation to standardize, I think, is especially prevalent for Christians, probably more so than anyone else, because we have this Bible, and it has so much to say about money and generosity and care for the poor. And in an effort to obey these words, in an effort to put them into practice, which is a good thing, right? There should be some sort of outward expression of these things in our lives. But we can easily create new laws, which is a bad thing. We can become legalistic. Actually, this is really relevant for me right now because Carissa and I are about to take a trip to England and Ireland for a couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, thanks for the cheers. <laughs> it's our 11 and a half year wedding anniversary. <laughs> and we've never been on a trip like this before. And I really believe that it's a gift from God and that it's a wise investment in our marriage and, um, and that we're going to meet him and that we're going to have fun together. And simplicity is not opposed to fun or rest or celebration. But if I listen to that voice of legalism, we'd never take that trip. Friends, when we make ourselves the standard, we're treading on dangerous ground. Because there's always someone living with greater simplicity than us. And if those that are richer than you have to answer to your standards, are you prepared to answer to the standards of the poor? Jesus says this, Judge not, lest you be judged, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I hope I don't need to tell you that if you live in the United States, you're almost certainly in one of the wealthiest income brackets in the entire world. And that holds true, actually, even for lower-income neighborhood like Frenchtown. According to a study by, done by the World Bank, if your family income is 10000 a year, you're wealthier than 84% of the world. If you own a car and have internet access in your home, you're in the top 10% of the wealthiest people in the world. In the United States, we have an incredible infrastructure. Free K-12 education, health care, parks, libraries... And the fact is that what passes for a house in much of the world is the place where we want to store our lawnmowers. So in the end, standardization is also an illusion, just like privatization. Not because there are no standards, but because God sets the standards, not us. He knows our hearts, He knows our cultures, He knows our specific situation, and in the end, we'll have to answer to Him as to whether we laid up treasure for ourselves or whether we were rich toward God. But moving on from the parable of the rich fool, look with me, if you would, at verse 22. Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. I think it's interesting that when Jesus tells us not to be anxious, he isn't talking about things like MacBooks or cars. Right? He's talking about basic necessities here. Food and clothing, and even those struggling with basic necessities, he tells not to be anxious. Did you know that the Bible commands us, not just here, but in several places, not to be anxious? Isn't that interesting? It's like, really, Jesus? I didn't know it was a choice. <laughs> right? I thought I just, I'm automatically anxious. 
But in a strange way, I'm actually comforted by the fact that Jesus teaches that anxiety is a sin because it means that God doesn't want us to make peace with anxiety all our days, right? That's not his plan for us. That's a good thing, but that's not his plan for us. Anxiety is an epidemic in our culture. We stay up late into the night worrying about how, many, how other people think about us, who's friended us and who's, who's unfriended us. <laughs> College students worrying about what they're going to do with their lives. Married couples worrying about money. Entire industries are capitalizing on our anxiety about food and fashion and health care and safety. I was anxious when I was preparing for this sermon. <laughs> but how beautiful would it be? How liberating if we could live without worrying so much. If instead we could just operate with a childlike trust for our Creator. That's probably the central message of Jesus in this passage. You can trust your loving Creator with your needs. You can trust your Father with your needs. I remember reading about Mother Teresa and the Sisters of Charity one time, and they accomplished all kinds of amazing things for the poor. But she had this principle, and not all nonprofits, not all godly things operate in this principle, but she had this principle where she would not ask anybody for money. She wouldn't ask anybody for money. She just prayed to God for her needs. And God always provided in these miraculous ways. I mean, and they built buildings and structures and spread into all kinds of new countries and had their ministry funded and continue to have their ministry funded to this day. There are amazing stories about God providing for the Sisters of Charity in their work among the poorest of the poor. And she wanted to give this prophetic witness to the world as well, that they could trust for God, they could trust God for their needs. Now the skeptic within us wants to say to Mother Teresa and to Jesus, aren't you being a bit naive? Right? But Jesus is a very reasonable guy. In this passage, he gives several reasons why we should trust in God. In verse 24, Jesus says we can trust our Creator because He values us. He's not going to forget us. He provides for the birds, and are we not more valuable? He says much more valuable than they. Now Jesus isn't trying to level a massive critique against the farming industry or planning for the future. We talked about that a bit last week. His point is that the ravens are not involved in anxious activity. They don't strive in the way that we do. And yet the Father feeds them. And if God cares that much for the lesser, will He not care that much for the greater? All of Jesus' points here actually follow this lesser to greater logic. That's what he's, what he's using to teach here. In verse 25, we learn that we should trust God because we don't have control. We don't really have control. Our worrying is fruitless. Our worrying can't add a single hour to our span of life. Actually, it's more likely to do the opposite. N.T. Wright says, We know that anxiety itself can be a killer. Stress, worry, they can cause disease or contribute to it, producing the enchanting prospect of people worrying about worrying. <laughs> a downward spiral that perhaps only a good sense of humor can break. Next, Jesus says that we should trust our Creator because His handiwork is more beautiful than all our strivings to look beautiful. Verse 27 says that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like the flowers of the field. And finally, verse 30 says that we can trust God because he already knows our needs. Unlike the pagan deities that needed to be filled in, our Father knows what you need before you ask him. 
Now, what is the cumulative effect of these verses? To live by faith, O you of little faith. Right? Actually, the Greek for this phrase, or O you of little faith, is only one word, and it's plural. And so Jesus is, is calling them little faiths. Jesus is like, come on, little faiths. Trust the Father. He loves you. He's got you, little faiths. Stop striving after what the world is after and strive after the kingdom instead. So to sum up Jesus' teaching here on simplicity, Richard Foster lays out three inner attitudes that Christians should have regarding money and possessions. So three ways we should be thinking of these things on a heart level. He writes, If what we have we receive as a gift of God, and if what we have is to be cared for by God, and if what we have is available to others, then we will possess the freedom from anxiety. This is the inward reality of simplicity. So let's look at all these points just a bit more carefully. First, we have um, what we have we should receive as a gift from God. Everything we have we should receive as a gift from God. Isn't it interesting that right after telling us to strive for the kingdom in verse 31, Jesus seems to take all the pressure off in verse 32. He says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He's not withholding. To give you, it's a gift. The word grace simply means free gift. The reason for this apparent tension between striving and gift as Foster writes, is that grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. If we could let that point sink in, if we could sort of marinate in that, it would go a long way to solve apparent contradictions in the New Testament. But he still wants us to strive for the kingdom, to seek it, to pray for it to come. I remember one time I was on a retreat and I was just sitting there, and I was anxious, and I was about to transition from campus ministry. And transitions can be especially anxious times, right? And so, some of you guys are in transitions, and you're you know, looking for a house, or you're trying to start a new business, or you're you know, transitioning out of school. It's an anxious time. And I remember that these words by Jesus hit the nail on the head for me. He said, Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give to you the kingdom. And that made me realize that, that what I was worried about, what I was considering was my own future, and I was worried that I would miss the kingdom. Not missing out on going to heaven after I die, but worried that maybe if I'm not spiritually sensitive enough or clever enough or whatever, I'm going to miss out on God's kingdom purposes for my life. Some of you this morning might not be worried about uh, money or possessions today, but you're worried that some kingdom venture that you have or some dream is going to be withheld from you. And we need to hear this word that it's God's good pleasure to give to you the kingdom. That's his disposition towards us. Everything we have, we receive as a gift from God, from our salvation to our daily bread. And it's not some mental trick that we're tricking ourselves to believe. It's sheer fact. Um, I remember years back I was watching an episode of The Simpsons, and, um, and they had gathered for a Thanksgiving meal, and uh, I remember they asked Bart to say the prayer, which is not a good idea. Right? Asked Bart Simpson to say the Thanksgiving Day prayer, and he prayed, um, "We paid for this food ourselves, so thanks for nothing." <laughs> now that that sounds pretty blasphemous. 
But um, is that really that far from where our hearts often wander? When we forget that everything we have is a gift from God? The Father has given you life, breath, the muscles in your body, the brain in your head, your genetic code and special talents. He's given you the family you were raised in, the person who taught you the value of hard work, the educational opportunities you have here in Western culture. So all that we have, we receive as a gift from the Creator. Second, what we have is to be cared for by God. Not cared for by our anxiety, but cared for by God. Again, we don't have the kind of control over our lives that would make anxiety a fruitful activity. So in wisdom, Jesus is calling us to just relinquish our false sense of control over such things. And he's not saying don't lock your doors or take common sense precautions, but as Foster writes, there is simply no such thing as burglar-proof precaution. There's no such thing. Furthermore, Jesus wants us to know in verse 33 that there is a place where we can store our treasures where no thief or moth, where, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. And that brings us to the third principle of inner simplicity, that what we have should be available to others. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Probably be a good idea for some of us. And we got too much stuff. We got the stuff cluttered up, and we like moved it up to Pittsburgh with us, and we moved it back here, and just like, we need to sell some of this and get rid of it. Uh, you know, this is practical advice here. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. It's not only practical for our, our life in this life, but this is actually one of the most consistent teachings of Jesus in the New Testament. It makes us uncomfortable. But that as we give, we're storing up treasures in heaven. That, that, that what we're valuing here on earth, where our heart is here on earth, has heavenly implications for us. Read the Gospels. It's all over the place. Or take the early church as an example, and you're reading from 2 Corinthians 8. Paul just assumes, he says, as a matter of fairness, that the church in Corinth would make what they have sacrificially available to the church in Jerusalem. Right? He says, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. To me, that sounds scandalously different to the way that we think about money nowadays. That's because what we have is not available to others. We're not operating under the biblical principle of simplicity. Last week I told you about John Wesley, who's one of my heroes in the faith when it comes to money. And I mentioned that when he was a young man in Oxford, he had an income of 30 pounds a year. And he lived off 28 and gave two away. And as he increased in wealth, mostly because of his writing, you know, to 60, 90, 120, he still lived off the same 28 pounds that were sufficient for him early on and gave the rest away. Now one biographer estimates that John Wesley gave away 30,000 pounds in his lifetime. So if you think about it, you can take that amount he used to live on and, and, and multiply that by, by more than 1,000, and that's how much he gave away, the amount that he lived on in a year. So I don't know how much 28 pounds was at that time, but if he lived on the equivalent of $30,000, let's say, that would mean that he gave away $30 million. Right? Wesley 
died at a ripe old age of 89, but based on his yearly standards, he could have lived 12 more lifetimes just on the money he gave away. In the Gospels, Jesus never speaks a word against making money. In fact, at several points, he commends wise business practices. But he wants us to be careful about the bank we put it in. In conclusion, I want to summarize and then draw us to a close. I began by talking about our materialistic culture and the kind of creative nonconformity it would take to live out Jesus' teachings on money. Next, we talked about the temptation to privatize and standardize and how they're both shown to be an illusion at final judgment. In our passage, we discussed the many ways that Jesus sought to communicate the simple message that we can trust our Creator instead of trusting our anxiety to shepherd us. Finally, we explored Richard Foster's three inner attitudes of simplicity. And I ask you, do you view what you have as a gift from God? Do you trust God to care for what you have? And is what you have available to others? I close with one final insight from Foster. He points out that our views on money even affects the kinds of stories we tell as a culture. He says the modern hero is the poor boy who purposefully becomes rich rather than the rich boy who voluntarily becomes poor. But as we think about this issue in our own lives, let us consider afresh the gospel of Jesus Christ from 2 Corinthians 8-9. For you know the grace, you know the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through him you might become rich.